This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to Global Leadership Platform, um, our weekly leadership masterclass, Multiplying Leaders, Moving Society. I'm Adrian Grunewald. It's wonderful to be back with you. Go to leadershipplatform.com for all things leadership, two Ps in the middle. Yes, our weekly leadership masterclass for 50 minutes or 55 minutes. Special guest, we have her back in the studio, I don't know, maybe every couple of years or months. Um, but I also find that if I try and think when last it was, I'm always surprised because time flies so fast. Mm. So we've got environmentalist, entrepreneur, social activist, businesswoman, leader, passionate South African, passionate globalist, um, <laughs> Catherine Constantinidis in the studio. In fact, it's not in the studio. We, we've kindly been given the ER24 uh, boardroom or office. So behind us, we also have a recording with some wonderful pictures of the good job that these people do. Um, saving lives, helping people. So, Catherine, good to be with you at this premises and to catch up. Absolutely. I'm so excited. It has been ages. And every time you actually do think back, you realize that, in fact, these the months and years just continue to go faster and faster. So it's an, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Don't they just, uh, you know, literally it was January the other day. We're now almost in August. This year has gone. Yes. It's gone and it's you you think people plan ahead and that people are talking about something happening in 2020 or 2022 and you think wow that's far away but we actually time just goes by so fast and this year alone has just disappeared do you recall the i mean the first time i think we met also in interview format was was it the michelangelo correct yes i mean do you have any idea how long back that was that has to be easily maybe about 10 years ago why do i think it could be hey I definitely Could it be a think decade? It, oh, that's scary in itself. <laughs> oh, man, it is. Wow. And, and you have just led an 80-year life in the last 10 years. <laughs> I mean, not, definitely not in terms of looks or in terms of appearance, but, oh, but in you. terms of activities, in terms of what you've done. I mean, um, so I, I want us to, to capture that. But, but the reason, in a way, I have you back in the studio is we, we have this concept. We talk about I lead. Yes. I lead from where I stand. And for me, you're an example of that. And we're going to explore the things that you're doing in terms of leading in society um, in the various categories, environmental, activist, doesn't matter. Uh, but, but also promoting this principle that nothing is going to happen in our society if you and I don't lead from where we stand. Yes. And I have to be an I leader. Mm-hmm. You know, forget my title, forget... Uh, position just yeah. just think about leading from where i stand and it almost feels like you cannot say no to an opportunity to lead and to make a difference so so perhaps in simplicity we will unpack a little bit more what are the various key activities you're involved with They're not not detail about the activities but you know if it's not um happening in what's happening in morocco then it's at the un and then it's environmental issues then it's um, I don't know, just a lot of things. But just kind of categorize for us. Sure. I think sort of top line um, would be very much the environment and climate change remains a core part of the work that I do. I'm specifically focusing a lot on waste, and we can go into that later. I'm also doing extensive work, continue to work as a human rights defender, specifically on the issue of 
the conflict the conflict area Western Sahara and the conflict with Morocco and the illegal occupation there. I do a lot of lobbying and extensive human rights work at the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, working with refugees and really forgotten people of society. So working at that platform to really, really highlight the injustices being done on a daily basis. And then here at home, my heart remains, how do we build our nation? How do we ensure that we stand up for the wrongdoings? How do we ensure that where we are, we lead from from that space. And I think it's such a beautiful concept. And I love that concept because it doesn't matter who you are. You do have a responsibility, be it to the people in your home, the people in your community, or the people you work with. You have a responsibility to be the best that you can be and to lead in any given circumstance and, and, and circle that you find yourself in. So you're leading, mobilizing, inspiring, doing so much of it, but you, you don't have a formal title as CEO in a big business, although you have your own business, I'm sure, on the side. You don't, you know, you, you're doing it not as a formal title holder. Sure. If that makes sense? Absolutely. You're not the premier of Gauteng, um, trying to change things in Gauteng. You're not the mayor. You're not the president. That will come. Um, but, you know, you're, you're leading from you know, where you stand. I've just come from a meeting and around this boardroom table of about 25 people, everyone had to introduce themselves and say, well, this is who they are. This is their position and where they come from. And when it came to me, I had to have a good giggle because I said, I'm Catherine Constantinides and I'm a proud South African. And that literally had to, that for me is my title. It's the space that I occupy. And you're quite correct. I don't have a title. I don't run a big corporate um, or NGO or anything like that. But I believe in the things that I'm passionate about. And ultimately, how do we move those visions forward, no matter who we are? And it's really, I think sometimes we get lost in the titles and and the clutter of who we are and where we are and, you know, what office we occupy. But we forget that every single one of us is exactly the same and we all have that same responsibility. Sometimes title uh, cloud who we really are or how people really feel around us, yes. how they act around us. You know, title can be a huge barrier. You know, you look at the president when he walks around. Are people being honest with him? Are they really open? Are they saying what they think he wants to hear? Are they saying things to make themselves look good? Or are they saying what needs to be said? Absolutely. So when you lead without title, you've got more authenticity around you. People speak up about real issues. Um, so before we go to the actual areas in which you lead that you sort of on a high level unpacked for us, I, I just want to go back again Um to where this drive started to get involved. Do you know? Was it a slow process? And I'm sure I've asked this question before, but, but is it in your upbringing? Did something happen in your life? Why is Catherine so exceptionally motivated and energetic and never lets go or lets <laughs> up or, or stop? <laughs> you just keep going. Why? You know, it's an interesting question because I never really sort of I've never thought about that question before until I've been asked it. And I would have to say absolutely the kind of home that I grew up in. I grew up in a very humble home with parents who really, really um, ensured that we dreamt. As young children, whatever dreams we had, they would allow us to amplify those dreams. As unrealistic as they were, they told us we could achieve anything that we believed in. And I think that basic underlying principle of our childhood really 
sort of turned out to who we became and the the way that they spoke to us as children became the kinds of lives that we lived because they would allow us the opportunity to listen and to learn in any given occasion they would allow us a home that was very open-minded to what was going on in the country even if it was not of their choosing or, or they did not believe in in certain things they always allowed us to learn and I think that giving us the platform to mold and shape our own thoughts and ideas around so many issues uh, from from basic small things right up to the bigger things without knowing it that really shaped who we became we also grew up in a home where even though we had so little we grew up in a home where part of our family fabric was was to serve community so i i remember countless um times where as young children my dad and mom would put us in the car and we would drive around and and hand out food parcels or we would go and work in a community we'd play bingo with old people um, at old age homes on a weekend and it wasn't something we had to fit in how would when were we going to do this it was what we did as a family and I remember many Christmases where my mom would cook huge amounts of food and we would go in and eat the food with with people in in homes or communities etc so that was the kind of home that we we were brought up in and really I, I emphasize that the fact that I didn't grow up in a home where we had a lot but what we had was enough and we we didn't know that we didn't have a lot until we were probably a lot older and looked back at that journey but we realized that what we were given by virtue of the kinds of values that were inscribed in who we are as people were really the, the most important things we could possibly have had. So, so open-minded environment from your, 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 your family environment, your, your parents, uh, or allowing you to have an open mind and a view and, and, and so on, but then also action, so some community service. Yes. But but your parents didn't grow up as environmentalists. No, necessarily. not at I guess all. in those days, we, I don't even know if we thought about those issues. Um, or, uh, you know, your fight for the people in the Western Sahara area. I mean, so that evolved over time. So the yes. foundation was good. The foundation was good. And I think organically, I, you know, uh, during school, there were many leadership roles that I, I, had during my school career, both in primary school and in high school. And I think that also became part of the journey that I would walk and understanding that when I wanted to study after university, uh, sorry, I wanted to go to university after I finished school, the opportunity was there for me to, to have a bursary that was then taken away for many reasons that were not my own. And when those kinds of challenges, uh, you know, sort of stay you in the face, you realize that you have to make sure that whatever it is that you want to achieve, you're going to achieve it regardless of the challenges that, that face you. And so I faced many challenges, hard, hard challenges, ones that I carried on my shoulder for a long, long time. But you have to sort of go through that process to get to where you want to be. And so to, things don't just come easy for you. Don't they? they don't come easy. You they may absolutely make it look don't. That way. You, you carry on and you carry on doing what you do. You also don't just sort of hang out all the, the, the washing of what you've had to go through. And, you know, you don't always share that journey, which sometimes is important. But, you know, I, I'm at the age of 18, made the decision to put my siblings through school and through university because I could not study. I couldn't study because my father got really ill and he, he had to stop working and I couldn't afford to go to university. And this is not a narrative that is, you know, people would look at you and they put you in a box and they say, you must have come from a wealthy white middle 
income home and have gone to private schooling, etc. But that wasn't the case at all. I came from a very, very humble home where I went to a government primary school, government high school, and had to apply for a bursary. The bursary was then taken away in my second year because they realized I put on my bursary application that I was South African. I didn't say I was white. And because I said I was South African, that bursary was meant for a black male. And it was then denied and taken away in my second year because of that. And that for me was a hard, hard, um, a hard challenge to have to deal with. Mm. And I had to make sure that I did whatever I needed to do to ensure that my siblings never had to go through the same thing and that they could afford to study anything their hearts desired. Yeah, and I'm sure we can unpack that a lot. As you say, uh, sometimes one projects yourself so confidently and so passionately that it looks like everything happens for you. Sure. And people forget it's been a hard journey, and, and uh, one should never, never assume those sort of things. I mean, I, I, I'm just going off the cuff because, you know, we've associated over the years and follow you, and, you know, we, we kind of know what we're doing, you know, on my side, your side. But you've got... From Miss Earth to Tutu Fellow, um, uh, I don't know what the exact title for that is, uh, several other accolades over the years uh, of late, the top 100 future young Mandelas, which um, uh, News 24 just, I think that's a wonderful initiative. And I can go on and on about all these accolades. Where is it all leading to? Do you know? Do you feel? Do you dream? I Yes to all of those. <laughs> Uh, yes and no, because I don't always know where the journey is going. I know where I want to go to, but sometimes the road we take is very different. And the one thing, you know, from what you've just said is sometimes people see you close to the top of a ladder, but they don't realize that you really had to climb to get to where you are. And people don't realize how many times you fall off that ladder and have to start all over again. And I think for me, that journey of determination and perseverance is very important because People see one small slice of of an entire life, and they don't realize that you really had to work hard to to be able to be there and to be able to share just that one slice of your life on a certain platform. But for me, it's really been an opportunity to, with these accolades, every time there's an accolade or an award or I'm invited into a fellowship, I'm so humbled by that because... It's such an honor to the journey I've had to walk. I honestly have had to live 50 lifetimes of challenges in a short space of time, but I'm humbled by who they've made me and what they've allowed me to achieve. I would not have been where I am and doing what I'm doing now if I had gone through university in a very traditional manner. And if I didn't lose that bursary, I probably would have taken a very different journey. So with each of these accolades, I'm humbled. I look back on a journey and a life well lived because at night when I go to bed, I have to go to bed with my conscience and mine alone. And I have to be the one that's answerable to the vision and dream that I want to live. And if I'm not honest to that dream that I believe can come to life through the work that I do, I need to deal with that myself. And so, yes, I do believe that this is all moving towards a certain place. And I think that it has been a beautiful journey where I can dip in and out of communities, be on the ground, be with people and understand what the real challenges are. And I think that it's not being a leader is a great responsibility and it's a very difficult task. But when you lead from within and you you're brave in what you're trying to deal with, even when you don't have all the answers, I truly believe that you're 
the most authentic person that you can be. Mm. And that is crucial. It must be a place where you are safe and feel confident enough to say, I still don't know all of the answers. I still don't know everything I need to, but it's a journey of growth. Okay. So it's leading somewhere, but you're not going to say CEO of the largest business in the world or no. I know what kind of conversations <laughs> I've had with you. Um, and, and, and I certainly hope it leads to more formalized leadership positions, although there are dangers to those. Uh, later, I want to ask you who inspires you. And, but how difficult is it in your, your leadership position? It's always about mobilizing people almost without title very often. Don't you find that very taxing and difficult? Because just to make a living for one's family these days is so hard. Or just to run my little business or my big corporate. Yet these ordinary South Africans, top CEOs, top politicians, whoever, they're always called upon to extend themselves further than just the responsibility that they have because there are so many needs beyond those defined responsibilities. Is it not, is it, how do you find that? Trying to mobilize people all the time. For good causes, definitely. But they have so much going on in their own lives. Mm. The competition to survive just is so difficult. How do you get over that? I mean, surely you want to mobilize more. You'd like many more millions behind the Western Sahara and cause. You, you'd, you'd want many more millions behind every one of your causes. Absolutely. But in, in general, people listen. They know it's important. But let me get on with my life. And that is the narrative. We live in a time and age where it is very difficult to make just the bare minimum just to survive and be able to do all the things that we're required to do as as individuals, as families, as people who are supporting uh, additional people. You know, when you're leading an organization and so many families depend on the lives that are just in that business, you have a great responsibility. So to now try and get people to bend their ear on things that are not really important or not really of interest to them becomes really challenging. But if I talk about something, for example, where, you know, our focus on waste for the past four or five years has been really about making sure that we continue to drive a specific message around waste. Waste is a very unsexy, untalkable topic. No one really wants to talk about it. Who wants to be the poster person for waste, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. But... Because we have really tried to find alternative ways to create discussion and debate and um, have those awkward conversations, we have been able to really push and drive to see that policy gets changed, that implementation of projects that had happened 10 years ago that were not implemented properly by different government departments have started to take shape. But it's only because we have been consistent and we continue to drive and push those messages. The key is joining the dots. What we never understand is how we are connected to certain issues. So we think about climate change and many of us will not even pay five minutes of attention to anything related to the environment or climate change because we think it's got nothing to do with us. But when you drive at home and you connect the fact that our, our taxes are going to go up if we don't start separating our wasted source. If we start to talk about the fact that every time we go into a supermarket to buy our fruits and vegetables, the more that we spend on those that are imported and we, we neglect that little shelf of local produce, that farmer and that small community is going to cease to exist. We're therefore going to pay higher prices on our food. Mm. The fact that oil and fuel keeps going up and the, the cost of living continues to, to rise. The fact that water 
has become something that we're now talking about only because there was a crisis. Yet, if we were talking about water like we should have 10, 15 years ago, we would not have seen the crisis that we have seen today. Mm. And what we must not forget is that South Africa is a country that is semi-arid and is desperate for all the water that we have, and we have to safeguard and protect that. Otherwise, the cost of water will go up tremendously. So, so the need for us as you, ordinary human beings, but certainly as leaders of, of organizations, communities, provinces, families, whatever, the need to realize everything is linked yes. and interlinked and connected. So, yeah, we, we live in, 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 a, in a society that we, we naturally default to selfishness, I think, Yes. It's human rights. It's I. It's me. Yes. You know, it's all about me. Uh, getting to the top. That sort of thing. Um, yet everything is linked and interconnected. So, so I guess that's a that's an uphill battle for people like yourself and all leaders to get their people to see that the dots need to be connected. That we're is not just about what we're doing. Part of an ecosystem. Part of an ecosystem. Yes. It's human beings. It's a society. Business. Mm. Politics. Social. It's all connected. You can't, you know, close your ears or shut your eyes to anything of importance mm. so we want to find out a little bit more about this thank you for opening up about what drives you and a bit about your background i think people need to know that you're a real person you're not just someone who's always up there doing the romantic things and in fact you're not you go to the places that are um, so warm very unromantic, <laughs> very unromantic. <laughs> um, i think that's where people are fascinated perhaps because you can pose and look wonderful and and yet you, you're willing to put on Whatever you need to put on to go to a desert and, and, and to, um, mingle and associate with poor people, uh, shake their hands, be there, give hugs. So you do all of that. And then you sit in boardrooms with, with people. So it's, it's a, it's a rare quality. Is it the common touch? Is it the ability to, what is that saying? There's a saying, walk with kings and then something about the common man. You know, so you can, you can function on all, all levels. Um, Again, I would think it goes to background. You know, if your parents introduce you to all sorts of people, you become comfortable in, in the presence of all sorts of people. And that's something, but anyway, waffling on, but that's what I admire so much. I want to know, you are sitting and participating in the benches of the UN. So tell us about that. Not just, we'll get to the cause that took you there. You've been there more than once. Several, yes. Several times. Yes. But, but just what's it like? I mean, I guess there are some platforms in this world where we are, fascinated by it in some ways i guess uh, for me walking past the white house and and actually mm -hmm. going on a tour in the not the west wing but the east wing to me i just sat in front of the white house and thought my brother-in-law worked at a law firm, firm where he walked past the white house every day and i thought it's a symbol of leadership over centuries you know yeah um so there are some of these almost hallowed places where you know a lot is happening big things are happening and i think the un it's one of those. Absolutely. What's it like there? It's, it's an unbelievable feeling. I'll Is it never intimidating forget. or not? I think you're more than intimidating. It's overwhelming because you go to a place like the UN and you stand in these huge corridors where for a moment you almost stop and you just see hundreds of people milling up and down and getting into meeting rooms and people going into the plenaries and out of the plenaries. And they're not just ordinary people. They are um, ambassadors to the United Nations representing their countries. They are heads of state. They are renowned activists from around the world. So it's, it's, it's a massive space of incredible people who are ensuring that – 
the wheel of justice must turn. And the difficult thing is you can't see it turning because it's such a slow process. But you have to believe that what is going on is going to eventually turn that ship. You don't, you don't wake up and see a, a ship turn. It takes a while for a ship to turn. And it's really that same kind of process. But when you are there and the magnitude of, of an organization like the United Nations is, is definitely overwhelming and it's an amazing feeling to be there you see certain parts of the un buildings that are in fact you don't realize that they live in the back of your mind because those are the images that you see all of the time in the media Mm. so when you're standing in those spaces i remember standing um on the lawns in front of the un building uh where all of the nation's flags um fly on on in two in two lines and i stood in between those two lines and i'll never forget looking up and looking for us South African flag, but that moment where you feel so small, but you're in this great grand place and there is fencing and there are hundreds of people looking in and you're on the inside. You're not one of those people standing on the outside just looking in and you're part of that system and are adding something to the greater and bigger system that is the United Nations. It's really an unbelievable feeling. You, there's lots to learn and there's a lot of protocol and a lot of very specific things that you need to learn to do and not do while you're there. But I've worked there now for the past year and have been there probably um, on average every two to three months and go to the sessions and participate and am actively involved. But that I, I can't even believe a year ago, if you had asked me if that's a place that I would go and work or, or find myself in, I definitely wouldn't have imagined that. And, and I guess not, not a cynical view, but but there are all these places. Parliament is another one where you feel just sometimes there's so much talking going on, and and it's a it can be uh, you've got the, the 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 leaders of nations meeting for a talk shop and they talk, and they feel very important because they're part of that clique or that mm. uh, too much talking. We've got a lot of talking happening. So did you did you get a feeling of that as well as the wheels moving slower uh, slowly as well as probably good things happening obviously there like in parliament they pass bills and they debate important issues but for the outside person for poverty happening all over and climate issues and 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 wastage and so on too much talking is there an element of important place people go there they feel good about being there but are they connecting with what needs to be done enough i think that you raise an important point because after working there for a year and really trying to give give myself time after every session that I've participated in, time to really reflect on what that time has meant in this space. Mm. I believe that it's a huge bureaucratic system mm. where too much happens with a small few who, who hold such great power yet are so disconnected from what the real issues are. Mm. They sit and have all these meetings and have all these discussions and these talk shops, but how many of them have even been into the very communities that they are representing? Mm. How many of them know members of those communities by name? And those are the problems that we have even here in our own government, in our local legislation um, processes. How many of the people that represent the people actually connect and are with the people on a daily basis. So for me, that is a very stark reality of the United Nations. And here is an institution set up to specifically the Human Rights Council to monitor and engage and ensure that human rights is is a basic need of every single person 
that lives on this earth, yet poverty is at an all-time high. People are mm. still um, faced with a lack of access to basic human rights. And we then also have founding members who have signed the charter and who are members of the Human Rights Council, yet in their own country they violate human rights every single day. They are people who are part of the, the signatories of um, against torture, and yet in their own backyard, they hide the horrendous torture that takes place on a daily basis in the year 2018. So it's a very, very torn, you feel the magnitude of a place like the UN. There's no doubt. But when you're there, mm. if you are, 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 are true to yourself and what is going on in front of you, there is a huge amount of lack of political will to move certain things forward. And that's where politics and power come into play. So I guess you're moving into a domain more and more where, where that magnitude is there. And that magnitude becomes magnetic. It becomes, um, uh, what's the right word? You know, that can take you on your own journey where you become disconnected. Mm-hmm. And, and the privilege and the, and, and the flattery of it, you know. And one must be careful of that. Yes. Uh, um, I'm glad you're honest. That's the feeling I get is that the magnitude of a, an honorary position or a, um, uh, what did we call about uh, an accolade mm. can take you away from, from what you're supposed to do in that position. And that's sad. It becomes a click, becomes a, um, what's another word for, a, for that? When, when it, when it becomes like a club. Yes, you know, like an all, uh, all, all boys club. Yes, that's you know? it. Yes, and 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 yeah, we 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 do do we discuss important things, and mm. it becomes an issue of I'm part of important discussions rather than I'm part of important doing, yes. important action, important change. But what what I like about what you do is you you're out there, and uh, you're actually in those communities, and and I commend you for that. There are a lot of leaders like you in in that same position, but man, I don't think enough. Um, so, so very quickly, you're, you're there. What, what are the fights that you're fighting in the halls of the UN? So the biggest fight that I'm fighting is the legal occupation of Western Sahara. This is an issue I've been involved in for four and a half years. And I really, after the first time that I went and I, I stayed in the Saharawi refugee camps, I left there knowing I have a huge responsibility to these people, a people that I never went looking for and they found me. And literally... The work that I do with both the the freedom fighters of their movement, the the refugees that are in the camp, is twofold. Because not only are we fighting for self-determination and liberation of these people, they've been forgotten not only by the world but our own continent. 42 years in a refugee camp. And what we're now seeing is a humanitarian crisis in the refugee camps because these were temporary refugee camps set up in 1975 and these people are still living there. Now generations of people are living there. But you also have the displaced Saharawis who are living statelessly around the world fighting for their freedom and for their cause. And as an activist, I get platforms at the UN that they as refugees or stateless people don't have access to. So we work really closely, really well together to for me to speak in certain spaces and open a door of opportunity for them to tell their story. And in other places where they may not be able to take their story, 
I tell their story. And the other thing that I've now got quite involved in on Western Sahara is highlighting the cause of political prisoners in the occupied territory and speaking out against the Moroccan government and the lies that they have sold. They constantly are selling, uh, illegally selling the natural resources of Western Sahara and they're going against many, um, you know, international law that has been passed that says that they're not allowed to trade uh, from any produce that has been either grown or comes from Western Sahara. And yet we now have proof that they are in fact doing this. There was a great judgment in the South African High Court earlier this year where a massive shipment called the Cherry Blossom stopped in our harbors in East London and was stopped because of intelligence that was received. And we were able to stop that shipment of phosphates leaving our coastline um, out to, to New Zealand. And those kinds of things are really big wins for this conflict. But what we realize is that this conflict is a greater deal of a lack of political will because nobody believes in changing the status quo because all of those that are gaining something from this are in the pound seats. For example, France sits as a permanent member of the, of the UN Security Council and France and Morocco are huge allies. So every time the issue of Western Sahara comes up, it's deferred and has been for the last 42 years. And the, the conflict of Western Sahara is the longest outstanding issue on the UN agenda in its history. So Crazy, this eh? is something that I constantly fight you for. You didn't know all these things when you started fighting for them. I had How many no people idea. Are in those, what, what is the number of people that, that's suffering like that? Approximately 250,000 people are living in the refugee camps. Sure. And the Sahrawi people are really a small nation of people, and that's why it was so easy to to occupy their land. But you realize that there's so much more at play. And because mm. there's a lack of political will to change the status quo for a small population of people who rightfully should go home, but because they're such a small nation, they constantly are fighting and their voices aren't heard. Morocco has had a shutdown from a media perspective for decades, and so their story has not been told. But then when you look into news agencies and who tells the news – and what angle the news is given to you in, you understand a larger narrative of making sure that this is an issue that's kept really hush and is not spoken of. Is, okay, you might have small victories, I guess, but, but do you feel like the bigger issue is moving? All these years that you've been, four years plus, is, is there movement? I, I see bigger voices saying something, speaking out against it, maybe even our president and others. Yes. Um, well, how do you feel? Was it making you more cynical? Was it it's motivating you more? Sure, there are days where you have all of those feelings in one day because I think when I started working on this issue and when I myself was trying to find out information, there was nothing. I couldn't find anything. I couldn't speak to anyone that actually even knew anything about Western Sahara, even from our government perspective. I remember about two years ago speaking in the South African parliament on a special committee that was set up to talk on Western Sahara and how many MPs came to me afterwards and said to me, they were so enlightened by what I said. However, South Africa has the strongest legislation and policy on Western Sahara, but our very own MPs don't know about the situation. Mm. So there's a disconnect again between policy and who knows what within those systems. But I do believe that we're moving towards a, an important point. There are big, there have been many small wins. But the bigger picture has been highlighted a great deal more now than it ever has been. And I have to believe that in my lifetime, the Sahrawi people will go home. We come from a history of a dark past mm. where 
I'm sure in the depth and darkest days of apartheid, I'm sure that people would never have said we would see a different South Africa. And so we have to hold on to the lessons that we had learned as South Africans and the fight for freedom that our people went through. And we have to hold on to that as a beacon of hope for the Sahrawi people as well. Do you have a favorite cause that you're fighting at the moment or just they're all important? Wastage. So the people in Western Sahara, you've got the water thing, which uh, everyone thinks is, 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 is sorted out. I guess it's not. And we uh, must never become complacent, I have mm. to say. We can't come become complacent right now because our dams are filling up. We can't just think it's business as usual. Mm. We have to change our usage and our consumption of these natural resources. We forget that we live on a world that is is – our responsibility to protect and to look after and make sure it's there for the next generation. Water, we, we have no idea. The water crisis was huge. Waste is going to be another one because within the next six years in Johannesburg alone, we will have lost all our landfill space. And if we don't have alternative ways to change the consumption and creation of waste, we're going to have a huge waste crisis in this city, which is an economic hub, not only for our country, but for our continent as well. I was driving, it's a simple example, I was driving from Watercliff High School, that road that comes down um, towards the base, the, the Watercliff base. Yes. On the left, I know people used to sell here and there um, partitions for your garden. And I drove past there yesterday or the day before, and it was just waste everywhere. On, all the way down that, that road that goes to the R21. Mm. Um, so I don't know, will we see more and more of that practically, visibly, if we don't? Absolutely. We're going on. to see that as, as a huge eyesore. And what we, what we seem to forget is that plastics don't litter. People do. Mm. It is us who, who has created the, that waste that's on the side of the road by, by using single use plastic. Every time we go to the shops and we buy a plastic bag for 40 cents and something that people don't realize is that plastic single use plastic bag has a lifespan of approximately 12 minutes and we never use it again. It yeah. lands up on our landfill, in the water, um, you know, in our water streams, and lands up being the pollution that we see. What kind of community do we want? And if we want to be able to live in beautiful places, we have to take the responsibility to make sure that those places are clean. Okay, so, so maybe just give us a, a moment on, on exactly how you're involved in the waste project as an activist, um, just to educate us for two minutes. And, and, and what's that fight about? We've mentioned a couple of things, but just pull it together for us. Sure. So through the Miss Earth South Africa organization, we have been focusing on how do we connect people to waste. So four years ago, we started a campaign called Waste Stops With Me. And this was really an individual or a call to action to to educate the individual and create awareness about how we create waste and how we need to rethink our relationship with the waste that we create. Every time we go and we buy something in the shops, it doesn't matter what it is. It's either packaged or it's going to be given to you in a plastic bag. We need to start behaving differently as the consumer because if we don't, we're going to be, we're putting our money, you know, if you imagine that in your home, you leave your tap running and your house starts to flood. The first thing that you're going to do when you go in is you're going to run and go and close that tap. Mm. 
Yet with plastic, we have not thought to stop the manufacturer, uh, the manufacturing of these single-use plastics that are damaging the environment and ultimately will damage our health. But we have just decided to use them differently or we have discussions about them, but we haven't stopped the manufacturing the end of it. The source, mm. absolutely. So we keep putting Band-Aids on the problem. We use the opportunity of community cleanups to drive awareness. That's not going to save the problem. It's not going to clean up our communities for a long-term, um, you know, a solution, but we have to make sure that we put pressure as consumers on those that we, we spend our money with to ensure that single-use plastic is no longer available and to make sure that we stop using plastic straws, something so simple. I don't know who ever came up with the concept of plastic straws, but it is now there's proof that the scientists have said by 2050 there will be more plastic in the ocean than there are fish. And every single t turtle that exists in our oceans today has been contaminated by some sort of plastic. It's sad, isn't it? It's horrible. It's horrific to think that as, as human beings, we have done this to the beautiful earth we call home. Shouldn't our country be in the forefront of of, of fighting for nature in some form. I mean, we're, we, we're certainly known for our nature. For, we're known we're for it. We're a beautiful country. Absolutely. You know? And so we, we should, should be, be at the forefront of, of, I don't know. All of these things. Mm. We should, um, if you look at the globe, many countries have started to ban plastic bags. One thing we can be really proud of, as a continent, Africa has got 25 countries that have already banned plastic bags. Oh. Sadly, South Africa is not one of them. We're not even there. If you look at the example of Rwanda, and I've, I've had the privilege of spending a lot of time in Rwanda over the last year, they banned plastic uh, 10 years ago, and they started to entrench this kind of concept of cleanliness in their culture. You now go to Rwanda, and if you had to throw something out of your window or drop something on the floor, it is in fact shameful. People would... Mm. would make you feel so ashamed of having done that. You would never even think of doing it. People don't eat on the streets. People don't walk around drinking things. If you eat or drink, you must sit down in a home or in a restaurant, and that's where you eat. It is so clean in Rwanda now, and that's why they're the cleanest country in Africa, that they are an amazing example of what is possible. And South Africa should be ashamed that we're not in those 25 countries and we're not at the forefront of ensuring environmental protection is paramount, especially because we rely on it so much for tourism. I know Mayor Herman Mashaba was very inspired by by um, you know the cleanliness of, of Rwanda and those areas, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. And, and, and he was, I think years ago, he told me how he was inspired when he was still a businessman. <clears throat> Excuse me. And how they clean up on a regular basis. And, yes. And when he became mayor, I think I sent him a message one day saying, so when are you going to start this sort of thing? And I'm sure it was on his agenda. And now he's doing that. So, so you've got people like him, I guess, who are mutually inspired and, and who will uh, push from a political will to, to do these things, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, but it's time. And, and that's what, back to my earlier questions, is the, you're, you're busy with all these important projects and, and, and people don't have time for it. And, and yet we must have time for it. We must make time for it. Yet uh, when I see you, you're, in, you're, you're motivated, you're inspired, you're energetic, you're, you're always smiling, and, and there's energy. And, and I think that is, that is amazing. Top 100 future young Mandelas. I mean, sure, it's, it was something News 24 came up with. But yet there's something, there's a nice ring for me there. I looked at all those young people. I literally went through all of them to a large degree and, 
And, and in fact, when that list came out, the first thing I thought was, I bet you Catherine's on yes. <laughs> uh, look, 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 look. Yes, there she is. Uh, oh, you know, I wasn't you. even surprised. But what does that do to you? I mean, are you a future, current, young Mandela? Um, you're not going to be young forever. But d- does that do what for you? Just inspire you more, remind you the course that you're taking, um, flatter you. Uh, obviously, you feel honored and humbled by it. But does that just confirm you're on the right path? What does that accolade do for you? You know, this accolade specifically was so special to me because growing up as as a little girl, I used to write letters to Nelson Mandela. Literally as a little girl. I've even got some of the pictures that I drew for him that my parents told me they had sent him, but they didn't. (laughs) And I probably was about... 11 or 12, the first time that I got home and I opened my post box and I got a letter back. And I will never forget, it was embossed with a stamp that said, um, Desk of the President. And I will never forget that moment opening this letter, which probably wasn't written by him, but it was signed by him because the ink had smudged and he had been so grateful for the letters I had been sending. So there were some letters my parents did send. But all my life I was so inspired by this great man and... I tried to meet him once and I went and sat outside his house for a good 12 hours and they told my mom, if I don't leave, they'll have to arrest me. <laughs> and I re- and I didn't get to meet him. But I was then invited to meet him. Uh, just before I had gone to represent South Africa in the Philippines, he had invited me for tea. I will never forget that time with him because that afternoon was so special for me. And as a young girl from the south of Johannesburg, from a very humble home, to have dreamt all my life of meeting this great man and then being able to spend an afternoon with him. What I didn't know at the time was that my journey and and life would allow me the privilege and opportunity to meet him many times thereafter and to spend time in his space. He had invited me to the first Mandela lecture, which he had invited Bill Clinton to be his guest speaker, and he then introduced me and I had dinner with the two of them. And those moments in my life have definitely been part of what has shaped my leadership journey. So an accolade by, you know, like this one, being listed amongst so many other amazing South Africans, but being listed with a title of a man who is revered the world over for what he has given us and the legacy he leaves behind is not only humbling, but is really an opportunity to say, what more can I do? Because no one can ever be likened to this great man. I don't believe that. I just think he stands alone and we stand on the shoulders of those kinds of great leaders who give us an opportunity to remember who we are. And I will never forget that he told me, the one thing I asked him was, what was one of the things that he regretted most? And he said to me that he regrets not being able to do more. And so I hold that as an important key to say, what more can I do? Because I'm still young and have an entire life ahead of me. But this great man to be listed is humbling, but it's really a great accolade that one puts down, but then you've got to step aside from that and you've got to keep working. We live in an interesting world, Catherine. Uh, you know, my question that I, that I want to ask you, but I want to give it some context is considering all these issues, how is leadership doing across the globe? Because we could argue what's happened with poverty. We can argue what's happened with um, the economy of the world. We can argue what's happening politically. You know, we, we, we really can, can look at it and say, oh, my heck. You know, we, we're supposed to be so much better at so mm-hmm. many things. If you isolate leadership, is leadership getting better or not? 
despite the fact that there's, there's more written about leadership, there's more leadership development, more leadership awareness than ever before in the history of the world. Just go type leadership in Google. How do you think leadership is doing? Are we improving in that area of society or are we letting ourselves down? I believe we're letting ourselves down. I think now more than ever, the world is in such a dark place. You can literally, you can close your eyes and you can stand in front of a global map and, and really put, you know, pin any point on the globe and the world is in chaos. It really is. And why is it in chaos? Because it lacks value-based leadership. It lacks visionaries. Because I think if we look at our history and our past, there's so much to to write about because we have such a great pool that we can look at and we can, you know, analyze and we can write about leadership. Absolutely. So there's more known about leadership now than ever before. Yet the values of what it truly means to be a leader have been lost in the noise and the chaos. And I think that people battle now more than ever because perhaps of social media, the connectedness of the world in the way that that we we drive ourselves, where do we put values? Do we put them in, you know, the musicians we see on TV, in entertainment stories, reality TV that really absorbs us? We're lost in a space where people don't know who they are because they're just lost in where they, they put their time and energy. And I think that leadership right now is is desperate for people to stand up and do the right things for the right reasons, not just to be revered, not just to be powerful. And I think that there's a, an important opportunity now for young people to also be inspired more than they ever have before because young people play a more important role now in our society than they ever have before. Mm. And they have access to so many platforms and the world really is a global village, but we're not using all of those advancements to our advantage as a human species, we definitely let ourselves down constantly. Instead of using platforms for good and to move ourselves forward, we use them to destroy ourselves, to create divides, and to move backwards. Because the world is so connected and because of social media and other platforms, leaders should be able to do more, yes. mobilize faster, mobilize more, and, and achieve more. But, but for some reason, it's not happening. And you've got a wonderful Mandela that the whole world reveres, but have we created many Mandelas? And that's why I like this initiative, mm. Future Young 100 mm. Mandelas. Uh, it just shifts the focus again to say, okay, let, let's create more Future mm. Young Mandelas. Mm. Um, so, so it's sad to hear that from you, but of course that's what I also feel, is that we're missing something. We're missing a, a global uniting around leadership. You know, we, We're missing... A focus on that itself. Yes. Now that we can focus on so many things, mm. let's let's see how do we focus on leadership itself. Who do you admire? Last few minutes. Who inspires you? This president of is it Croatia, the woman yes. president? Yes. Uh, she some, somehow emerged. Uh, you know, I never knew they had a woman president. Of course, and you hear so many fascinating things about her. Um, obviously, Mandela inspires you, and you've met Kathrada and, and so many others. But, but. Any leaders, women leaders that inspire you currently? Advocate Tuli Madoncela, I think, you know, she's a, an unbelievable inspiration Isn't for she us. Just, yeah. She's just incredible. I think that the opportunity to, for me, myself, I, you know, I, I could give you a list of names, but there wouldn't be names who would 
ordinarily recognize because I, I really pride myself in being able to find inspiration and pockets of hope within the communities I work in. I'm inspired by the people on the ground every single day that hustle and work hard to just do what they need to do. I'm, I'm inspired by those community leaders that I'm privileged to work with in villages in Rwanda and in Algeria where they don't know about an entire globe around them. They just focus in where they are and they lead from there. And for me, those are the greatest, greatest inspirations. It's the people who really, really do what they do because of where they are and what they want out of their own lives, as simple as they are. They don't want titles. They don't even, they're not fighting for a leadership race. They're just there to really lead their homes, their communities, their villages. And I'm inspired by those people daily. I must say, we come from a city where we do have a, a really remarkable mayor at, at this point. And Mayor Herman Mashaba and his wife, Connie Mashaba, Lovely that person. woman, unbelievable. Mm. And her journey, and if you look at what she has achieved as an individual and as a female businesswoman and leader, she truly is an inspiration as well. But I'm really, really grateful to come from a family where I look at my mom and look at the values my dad left us with, and those things inspire me all the time. Can we end off with defining for a moment what kind of leadership we need in the world now? So we've discussed all these projects and all these challenges and, 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 and what drives you, where you come from. Uh, we've determined leadership is not in a good space necessarily. Mm-hmm. But if we, if we take all of that and more and all your experience and my bit of background, what kind of leadership do we need now in corporate, in politics? You mentioned values-based leadership, values-driven leadership, visionary you mentioned. Yes. Let's just define that for the last few minutes. I think we need to understand as a country, if we look at South Africa and we localize it to a South African context, for me, the biggest thing missing is a set of values that we aspire to as a people. When we have a set of values that we say, these are the things that we want to be known as as South Africans. These are the things that we want to underpin who we are as communities, as business leaders, as political leaders, religious leaders, a set of values that we all are attracted to, that we all are inspired by, but also aspire to live. That for me is important. And when you take that discussion and you look at it from a global context, that is also missing. That is missing from, from a global perspective. We are all in so many different directions globally and everyone is chasing their one thing. There's no long-term vision as a globe of where we want to go. Everything is so divided into you're either part of BRICS or you're part of the G7 or you're part of another uh, ECOWAS or whatever other um, block that you have been cut up into. But there's no discussion about where are we as a global community? Who are we? What do we aspire to want to achieve? Mm. We have seen so much development over the last 100 years. And as a as a you know, continentally as a Western, um, you know, you look at the Western block and see what they've achieved and you see these great achievements, but there has never been a discussion to stop and to say, where are we at and what do we want to leave behind? What is the legacy of the next generation? Because I think for, for me, it's that value-based leadership that we lack and it's the lack of vision. Everyone is running in a different direction after a different rabbit and nobody understands the bigger picture and how everyone fits into it. 
yet we're so connected. It can happen. If ever it can happen is now or in the near future, you can have that sort of leadership. It's, it'll be difficult always globally. In South Africa, do you think we have it? We've got a president now that um, I think is loved pretty generally by uh, the broader population and all kinds of people. But um, the, 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 the challenge is so audacious, so big, mm-hmm. so huge. Your gut feel about President Ramaphosa? I think that President Ramaphosa has been given a very difficult task. He's a phenomenal leader. He has been an unbelievable businessman. And I think because he has done so well in business, he has that acumen that he brings with him to understand where do we need to move our economy to. However, being able to fix the rot that he has been given is a huge and mammoth task and a lot of work must be done. And as we try to strive and as the country continues to go through a certain euphoria because we were so hungry for something better than what we had, we've now got this great leader, but there's still, unfortunately, a group of leaders at the top that are still so rotten and that core rot has not been removed. Mm. So we have to be very careful how we tread. We must ensure that we continue to keep our leaders in check, that we continue to stand up as civil society and ordinary South Africans and stand up against the things that are not are not to our benefit. We've got to make sure that as South Africans, we play a role in building our country. Too often we've just stood by and stood back as citizens and said, yeah, but that's the role of government or government should do this and government should do that. I think gone are the days where governments just do what they're supposed to do. We now have to make sure that we keep them in check and that we play our role as well. President Ramaphosa, I think, has has done a, a great deal in his 100, his first 100 days that were, you know, really looked at and scrutinized, um, not so long ago. But he has a huge task ahead of him. And if the, the will of the people is not part of that narrative, he will not win this fight. And I really think that not only does he have to remove the rot that still lies within his own, his own direct circle, but we have to make sure that we are ensuring that we address the huge challenges on the ground. Our people are worse off now than they ever have been, and we have to address that. Catherine Constantinidis, proud South African and, uh, and leader. I Thank think you. authentic leader. I'm not going to put all the other titles behind you because that's who you are and everything else spins from that. Thank you for joining us and catching up. We, we, we will do it every now and then. I would love know, that. Just to catch up and to share this interview with the world and with South Africans and much broader. Uh, you bring in energy and people like you will help Saruma Pausa succeed, will help the UN succeed, will help wherever you touch. So keep at it and thank you for that energy that you bring into the country, into a conversation like this. And all the best. Thank you so much. And thank you for the platform and the the privilege of being able to speak to you. That's it. Our global leadership um, platform and our leadership masterclass. Thank you for joining us. Look forward to being with you again next week. Cheers, everyone. This is cliffcentral.com.